But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> I was surprised by this. I, I was surprised to, so I was just surfing the web and I came across a list on, uh, on Wikipedia of the uh, U.S. military aircraft's inventory, and it showed how many um, of each aircraft there was in the various services. Yeah. And, and, and I was kind of surprised by what the big numbers were. And eventually I'm going to give you a link. So you, I know you, you guys are, are, are uh, Wikipedia or, or you know, Google experts, but without looking it up, what would you say would be, kind of throw out some ideas of what's the most, most common, you know, the largest number of aircraft airframe models in, in the inventory? What do you think? In the United States? In the, in the U.S. military's inventory, yes. Fixed, in the fixed, U.S. military. Fixed, fixed wing or rotor wing or both? Let's go fixed wing first. Oh, man. Because this took me a little bit by surprise. And I'm actually going to break it down a little bit further than that. I'm going to say um, greater than two seats and then two seats. All right. What do you think? Anybody? Anybody? Oh, that's kind of a gimme. Bueller? I mean, what, when you put it like that, okay. it's obviously a trainer. Which trainer? I don't know. Well, um, yeah. I'm going to guess the, the King Air. I'm sorry, Rick, what were you saying? The King Air. King Air? Okay, that's an interesting good, guess. Good guess. All right. I was going to go with the uh, Texan Two. The uh, beach airplane. Texan 2, that's a, that's a good candidate, too, because they have a very common trainer. Um, and let's see, Texan 2, according to this Wikipedia list, the T6 Texan 2, there are 449 of them in the inventory. Oh, I see what you're looking at. Okay. Uh, I see what you're looking at. Yeah, whoever just breathed on their microphone, use caution, please. I think that was me. I, uh, <laughs> I see what you're looking at now. Yeah. That is interesting. Okay, so here we go. I'll, 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 uh, let me just paste into, uh, into Skype here uh, a link. Sounds like Jeb's already found it here, but uh, where are we here? Oh, I just really don't like Skype. How do I? Oh, it's over here. Here it is. And paste. And uh, Rick, a link should have popped up in your Skype that you can click if you haven't found it already. I found this interesting. Um, first of all, the most common aircraft overall is the, oh, no, it's, it's one of the fighters. It's the F-14, I believe. Is it F-16. 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 What's, the, what's the quantity there, Jeb? It's nine, I'm sorry, 600. Let me find it again because I scrolled past. Um, Wait a minute. Did you say 14? Did I? I didn't. Fourteen hundred? No, sixteen. Yeah, sixteen. Nine, okay, nine, yeah, that makes a lot more yeah, sense. Yeah, nine hundred sixty-nine. The fourteen's been phased out. The fourteen's yeah, been mothballed, except you know Iran. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, the uh, largest the largest quantity um, of airplanes that's uh, more than two seats. In other words, not trainers, not fighters, things like that. Is the uh, According to this list, anyways, is the uh, KC-135 Stratotanker, the uh, refueling huh. aircraft, um, huh. which I thought, I mean, that's like, you know, well, how I, many? I, I, I would have thought like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, 130s, you know, or, 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 or even these days, you know, C-7, C-17s, excuse me. No, this, see, I'm looking through here. Are you not buying this list? Well, Another thing going on here is you've, you've totally, well, I don't say totally, but you've omitted a lot of helicopters. Yeah, and helicopters are interesting, too. If you go down, down into the helicopter section yeah. of this list, um, that's a whole different category. It's uh, pretty interesting that it appears at a quick glance that the, uh, the Black Hawk yeah. and the other one was, the, I believe, the Apache. 
Well, you're missing out. You're missing the uh, OH-58 Kiowa, the, basically the Bell Jet Ranger. Okay. Version. What's the quantity on that one? I'm not seeing it here. 618. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a big number. That's the, Well, that would be the biggest number then, I guess. Yeah. Well, and that well, kind of makes sense. Well, That's the, kind the, of UH, the UH-60 Blackhawk's the largest. Yeah. It was a, is a... Uh, why are we talking about this for? Because it's, it's interesting. It's airplanes. All right, there's a lot of them, and it's not what I would have expected. I would have expected things like the, you know, the, the C-130 to be a big number, um, or you know, that kind of thing. Um, how many B-52s are there? B-52s. It's probably like twelve. No, I think there's more, more than that. Yeah, well, but it's seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. So. How many? You know. I'm not sure what prompted me. I think I came. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I would have thought the 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 greatest number of any aircraft in the fleet would have been like a UH-1 Huey, but those have been phased out. Well, they've been phased out so much, yeah. So there's not as many of them floating around as there as there once were. Who knows? Interesting. C5 Galaxy is only. And and you have to cross over. Yeah. And look at all the different services. Um, Yeah. And all the different makes and models. Yeah. Uh, there's, what, 400 or so Hercs. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe you're reading the list better than we are. What is it? Is there, I know there was different sections for different branches. Yeah, it's broken down by Hercules and Super Hercules, yeah. Air Force, uh, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard. Army. We'll have to get Army's got to. a boatload of helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> So let's we'll, see. We'll have to get our intern to, to work this <laughs> yeah, out. I know. Someone, do, someone do compiled this list yeah. to all, the, yeah. all, the, all grouped yeah. together, right? Yeah, I yeah. know. Anyways. Um, <laughs> but, you know, regardless, the, the idea that the tanker is, the, is, the, is way, right up there, it was kind of interesting. Um, but I guess it makes sense. Everybody, they all need gas. And, uh, you know. And, well, uh, their number of them are right here at McConnell Air Force Base. Are they really? Yeah. Of the uh, tankers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a major tanker base since the uh, uh, F-16s and then the B-1 bombers went away mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't all know in the last 20 years. I don't know if it's still the mission up here. I know Pease used to be a big tanker base. I think it still is. It may not be a big tanker base, but uh, what's le- Pease, of course, used to be a big Air Force base about 20 years ago, and then it got partly closed. There's still a big reserve branch here. And uh, the fun thing about peas, I just saw one the other day. Every now and then, you'll, you'll in the sky overhead, uh, uh, the area here in, in southern New Hampshire, you'll uh, see, and I saw one the other day, a, a C-5, uh, basically doing approaches and pattern work to peas because it's got a big, long runway that hardly ever gets used. And uh, so it's fun to see these C-5s just flying relatively low overhead. Uh, the numbers kind of made me sit bolt upright were helicopters. Yeah. Uh, the Army. The Army's got 756 Apaches. I know. Holy huh? cow. I know. Yeah. You know. Who would think yeah. the Army would be the big the big flying branch, right? You know? I mean, it's, well, they got over 400 Chinooks and another 400-plus to, to come. Uh, the uh, little uh, OH-58 Kiowa, the, based on the uh, MD-500 series, if I remember right, 600-plus of those, uh, mm-hmm. they're being replaced by UH-72s. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, they got a boatload of aircraft in the Army. I know, huh? It's kind of, it's it's a, another counterintuitive thing here um, when you look at this list. So, anyways, it's all pretty interesting, I think, anyways. And, well, the air cab's got to get around somehow. Uh-huh, there you go. I know, right? It's like, I don't know. I was going to make a horse's joke, but I don't know what that <laughs> joke might be. What would be an interesting <laughs> list would be, I don't, know, I don't know if it exists. Yeah. Um, would be like an up to the up to date list of 
aircraft types in various airlines. Well, I'm sure that's out there someplace, isn't it? Doesn't mm-hmm. what does Wikipedia say when you? Uh, I don't know. I haven't tried. It. <laughs> airlines. Airlines. Jeb, you're the Google master here. Airlines. By airline. Inventory. Uh, let's see now. Airline reservation. Yeah, yeah. uh, the most common one built is some variation of a three seven. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Overall, three seven is 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 uh, notorious for being one of the more common one of the, one of the most common airplanes in the world. But, uh, List of aircraft operated by Scandinavian Airlines. Okay, that's now. probably is not it. it. <laughs> I'm thinking I, I might be getting close. I might not. Yeah, I know. Well, while you continue to get close or not, I'm going to say welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson, coming to you from uh, uh, Seacoast area of New Hampshire, Papa Papa, New Hampshire, uh, where it's it's beautiful and uh, hot. Actually, it's like 90 plus degrees here today. It's it's uh, I may beat Jeb, maybe. Well, probably not, but it, we're probably in the same ballpark this today. What, uh, what was your temperature again? It's like 92 or something like that here today. It's it's pretty warm. Been been warm for the last couple of days. How was your spring? Was it like on a Thursday yeah, or on it, a Tuesday? <laughs> pretty much exactly right. It was like on a Wednesday and Thursday, and I was out of town, so uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's been a thing. I'm here with my uh, with with two of my good friends and one new friend who I'm going we're going to welcome into the hangar. But first of all, my two good friends here, uh, Dave Higdon's here from uh, talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Doing lovely. We're enjoying uh, the second day where it didn't rain continuously out of the past week. So yeah, have you been getting the fringes of that uh, Texas Oklahoma, um, you know, downpour deluge? Yeah, we've set our own kind of records here in the last couple of weeks, particularly the last week or so. Uh, and we haven't gotten it quite as badly as the mm-hmm. folks down in Texas have. Has, uh, that river that's just down the street from you is it behaving itself? Oh, it's out of its banks by about five feet right now. Whoa, oh. baby. I mean, that's kind of starting to get close to street level, isn't it? No, no. We've still got a good eight feet to go before it'll oh, okay. get over the, the little dike that runs around it. But there's a diversion ca- canal that runs around Wichita called uh, the, uh, what is it, Valley Center Wichita Flood Control Ditch. The locals call it the Big Ditch. Mm-hmm. And it takes water out of the little arc and the big arc yep. simultaneously and diverts it for about 27 miles. Yeah. Uh, so it didn't come through all the twisty turns that we got here where the two come together in sure. downtown. That keeps us dry. Yeah. No, and I, I'm sorry, I, di- I didn't catch what you said. Have they? Are they using the diversion uh, channel now? Oh, yeah. It's automatic. Yeah, okay. But it's, it, it's- it, as soon as the water in the rivers rises to a certain level... It fills up a siphon, a siphon, mm-hmm. and the water just uh, goes mostly into that ditch hmm. from that point on. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's flow controlled. And also here in the in our virtual hangar is my other good friend, Jeb Burnside, talking us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing, Jeb? I'm doing all right. Um, kind of between uh, heavy work periods, uh, getting ready for uh, getting gearing up for another one here, mm-hmm. and uh, looking forward to having a good chat. Yeah, actually. really. Now, what is the temperature there today? You know, I don't even really even know. Oh, no, you got. I seriously don't. It's it's um, about 78 where I'm sitting. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Outside is probably 92, maybe. What's maybe the pool? 90. 
uh, not much less, yeah. 88 last time I was. 88, I know, because we were trading texts the other day. Mm-hmm. I was over at Lookout Point, and I was measuring the uh, the temperature of the lake water, and it was like 62 degrees, which even we think is a little chilly. And uh, Jeb's going, well, we got 88. Anyways. <laughs> Your high for the day is 88. It, it, well, it, for the water won't even get, it'll never get to 88 at the lake temperature. I mean, if it does, actually, all kinds of economic, economical, ec, ec, uh, what's the word? Um, ecological? Ecological disasters literally happen if the water gets that warm. It's not a good thing. No, we also have with us in the virtual hangar today uh, someone who, to me, is a new friend. I've met a couple of times, but uh, I'm, I'm, I consider him to be a new friend, but is a, is a somewhat long-time or a long-time friend of you guys. Uh, Jeb, introduce us, please. Yeah, Rick, Rick Perry and I go back... Um, I guess into the 90s, we've been colleagues, we've been uh, um, friends for a long time. Um, uh, I know Rick uh, back from his days when uh, he was at NATA, and uh, uh, now he's with AEA. Rick Perry is uh, uh, Vice President Industry Affairs. What is it, Rick? Uh, Government Government. Industry Affairs. Yeah, long time in that role. Uh, AEA, of course, is the Aircraft Electronics Association. And uh, Rick asked to come on to talk about a few things, including uh, uh, what he really likes to do, which is being wrenches. Mm, yeah. Well, welcome, Rick. Well, thank you. Thank you. And Jack, I've got bad news for you. What's that? Um, since I'm here in the mid-Atlantic, yeah. we're, we're not sending you 80-degree weather. <laughs> oh, I see. What's uh, So you're, I'm not, we don't need to know your address, but what metropolitan area are you sitting in right now? Um, right between uh, Baltimore and Washington. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, is it warm down there today? It, you know, it is warm. Classic summer, and we're sending you some uh, some of that wet stuff. I'm afraid. Yeah, that's what I've heard. But we can use it. There's actually been fire warnings up here lately. It's uh, after having such an incredibly crazy wait, wait, winter. Wait, 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 wait. Back up, back up. Say that word again. Fire warnings. What did I say? I thought I heard far warning. Well, it might have been. <laughs> might have been hanging out with you Southerners, man. You make me talk funny. I don't know. Um, yeah, Maybe been, it's just my ear. I'm they've sorry. been far warnings, and uh, they, uh, they, we could use some rain up here, which is ironic given how much snow we had this winter. But the snow is long gone. and uh, and it's. Uh, anyways, Rick, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're uh, so, I mean, and the AEA thing is interesting, <laughs> but we really want to hear about, about you as a pilot. You know, what kind of flying do you do? What's, uh, what's your background there? Uh, not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. First of all, I think that's kind of universal. I um, flew crew in uh, both the Air Force and Coast Guard for the better part of about 26 years, and picked up my pilot's license along the way. And uh, mostly just uh, light singles, 172, um, Piper Warriors, that kind of stuff. Um, um, about 500 hours, give or take, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, VFR, kind of, kind of like to see where I'm going. Yeah, see, you and me. That's it. It's you and me against these other guys, Rick. It's because I'm a VFR only pilot and and like it that way. But uh, yeah, Hi. but you're also uh, a, a, an airplane mechanic too. It's uh, well, that's that's actually my trade. Um, I um, I started uh, bending wrenches on airplanes uh, back in the early '70s, and uh, have have pretty much, even though I'm here in, in Washington doing what I do for the association, uh, it's still fundamentally background in maintenance. And so I've essentially been in maintenance for a little over 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, and then kind of uh, get out and, and 
get to test fly what I what I've been working on. Mm-hmm. So you work on other people's airplanes as well as your own. I do not, not anymore. Ah, okay. um, I did uh, years and years ago. I've uh, done some work in FBOs and done some private work, but uh, uh, now I get to work on my own plane, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't think an apology is in order, but I have to admit that in the middle of that whole little wrap about that little riff we did about uh, the air, air, the uh, military inventory, I was thinking to myself. I wonder if Rick was in the military. I don't know this. I hope we're not like, you know, ooh, I, well, all right, you know, so. Um, but uh, Air Force background. Uh, started in the Air Force um, in Hueys, of all things. Ah, okay. Um, as a pilot or as crew or? No, no, crew. Crew, okay. Crew. Um, so, well, started as a mechanic and uh, became a, a crew chief and a flying crew. Um, and then... Uh, in uh, transition to the Coast Guard, did two more helicopter tours and then uh, three C-130 tours and, and finished my career at a desk in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, all pretty cool aircraft, if you ask me. I, that sounds uh, pretty nice. Um, you don't seem old enough to have been a Vietnam veteran. Am I mistaken about that? Or? Um, I am technically a Vietnam uh, era veteran. Because uh, I went in in '71, but uh, the job I had in the Air Force was restricted, mm-hmm. and we never got to leave the country. Mm-hmm. How did all this lead to uh, your work with AEA? <laughs> uh, that's about an hour long in its own right. Okay. Um, I uh, the Coast Guard inventory. Um, we were talking about military aircraft. Uh, the Coast Guard inventory is kind of unique in the military services. It's half military and half civil. And uh, when I was here in Washington, I uh, had the responsibility as the industrial safety manager. So I had uh, industrial oversight of all the maintenance operations with the Coast Guard. And um, that was basically industrial safety-esque, if you will, Mm -hmm. and environmental-esque. And so I ended up being the, the Coast Guard aviation liaison to EPA and... FAA and, and organizations like that ended up uh, having the lead in what was called the Aerospace NESHAP, National Emission Standards for Hazardous Air Pollutants, another acronym to learn. Mm-hmm. And that is aircraft depainting and repainting, um, methylene chloride, uh, those types of, of chemicals, uh, MEK, those things. And uh, ended up working with um, all the the, the large FBO organizations, and intimately with NATA. And so when I left the Coast Guard, NATA picked me up. And four years after that, uh, Paula recruited me away from NATA to join AEA. Mm-hmm. Quite a, a, a broad background, I would just characterize it as. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff there. He's also, he's also been known to attend Oshkosh via two-wheeled mm-hmm. conveyance. Oh, really? Really? So you're a motorcycle guy, too. And Rick Uh, has also been a rampy on the West Ramp. Are you still doing that? No. Uh, See, because I was going to say that might be the most interesting thing on your resume. uh. No, I um, um, actually, Oshkosh became such a busy place uh, for regulatory affairs and things like that, that it just didn't leave a lot lot of, of time left to do that. Yeah. But, uh, yes, I still ride uh, my motorcycle from uh, 
Mid-Atlantic to Oshkosh uh, every year and have been for mm, probably, oh, I don't know, uh, 14, 15, 16 years now. Yeah. Yeah, we've all seen a lot of changes over that period of time, for sure. Well, welcome to our uh, our virtual hangar here. We're glad to have you here. And thank you. So, what's going on in the world here? Let's see now. Is there um, a list? Yeah, there's a li- there is a list. Um, so let's see now. In in no particular order here, uh, Jeb, you th- you you called our attention to this thing about a New Jersey judge who did something good. What the heck? Yeah, there's a judge in New Jersey who's deciding a case, and. Uh, uh, this has to do with the Solberg Airport, which is uh, uh, in New Jersey. It's a privately owned public use airport. Um, yeah. Rick, is Thor, Sol- Thor Solberg, wasn't he in that, uh, that family that owned yeah. the airport? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's his family. Yeah. Uh, Thor was a, um, um, well, obviously an FBO Opera Airport Opera. He was, a, he was on the board at a- in ATA when I knew him. Um, they had a multi-year legal battle with residents around um, the airport there in New Jersey, uh, Reddington, New Jersey, um, trying to force the Solberg family to give up the airport, mm-hmm. basically, an imminent domain land grab. Uh, the case has dragged on for almost 15 years. And uh, finally, the judge threw out the case. This is... Not only is general, in his decision, in, in, he says, not only is general aviation important to the national infrastructure, but it serves a critical role as the cradle of aviation. The security and economic vitality of the United States depends on this laboratory of flight where future civilian and military pilots are born. That's a little bit of flowery, but... Yeah, it's, laboratory it's, of flight. It's, huh? That's... It's, it's spot on. Yeah, laboratory of flight. But uh, it was just an interesting... Um, this is on Flying Magazine's website. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little bit of a, a yeah, bright, well, bright piece of news about the industry. Take wins wherever we can get them. Sure. Um, David, you had a, a, a feel-good story, I think. Uh, you, you used the word good guys win in it, so I guess maybe it must be something. Well, I, I was thinking of it as kind of a companion to, to the story Jeb uh, put on the list. I saw that, and like I'd, I'd read about this airport's problems with the, with the town for years, and was always amazed at the stamina and the financial uh, stamina of the family that it took to defend against all that. So that ruling was really good. Well, out in Colorado, there have been a uh, there's been a small group of people who have lodged an, an exorbitant number of noise complaints against the airport next to which they moved in the last few years. And the uh, judge in that lawsuit came down on the complainants, uh, found that it was uh, uh, basically spurious, no foundation. Uh, They've been trying to close down a skydiving operation at the uh, airport at Longmont, Colorado. Uh, Well... They, they, they knew that was there when they moved in, and they traced a large percentage of the complaints waged to just a handful of phone numbers in the, in the little town around the airport. So the NIMBYs lost one, and that got basically tossed. And I believe that the, uh, the, 
folks that filed the complaints may be getting hung with the uh, legal expenses like they did out in New Jersey. Uh, I thought that was sweet. Mm, yeah, well, that's good. Making the, making the town pay that family's legal expenses after all these years. Yeah, well, that's right. Like I said, any anytime we can get some good news in GA, it's a good thing because it's uh, sometimes... Well, there's not a day goes by that there's not some airport somewhere under assault by somebody who just finds it incompatible with their sensitivities. Ain't it the truth? It's, Even though it was there when they moved in. and uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... There's this other story that's been floating around, and I just want to touch on it so we can. I personally think we're going to like reject it. We're going to like leave it behind pretty quickly here, because so there's a story floating around about this. Uh, we'll call him a hacker. He's not a bad hacker necessarily, um, but he's a computer. He's a white hat. Uh, yeah, a white hat hacker. All right, who claims that he was able from a ca- his ca- seat in the cabin of of a uh, commercial airliner um, that he was able to log into the uh, cabin Wi-Fi and then. Uh, hack basically into the flight controls of the aircraft and he claims that he was able to what con- make some adjustments to the throttles or something like that all right and and uh, do you guys know anything more about the story I, I, as a network guy because that's one of the things i do you know in my day job i i find it just almost inconceivable that that the, the cabin wi-fi is on the same network as the uh, cockpit systems um but what do you guys know about this story anything you know, Rick probably knows more about the, the avionics uh, than I do, but um, I can see it over some of these less secure buses. All this stuff at le- one level or another kind of sort of has to talk to each other. I, I see. I don't know about that. Rick, are, are you familiar with the, this situation at all? Uh, this well, whole, I, whether I, you, I, you can reach the, the cockpit network from the cabin? I, I've been following it for a while, and unfortunately, I, I wish I I knew more about it than I do, but the in looking at it, he's on a 737-800, and I don't believe that, depending on, on what system they're using, I don't believe that the in-flight entertainment system is connected to the cab, uh, the cockpit at all. Yeah. I, uh, I, some, I, of the, some of the newer aircraft may have some connections, but... The, the criteria to separate the two makes it to where you, you almost physically have to have two different computers. Mm-hmm. Well, one of, the, one of the things I was thinking about here is just the pathways for some of this stuff to move around. And you clearly got your in-flight entertainment that is you know, separate from uh, the, the flight deck uh, computers. But at some level, whether it's, a, a, it's an alert panel, master caution panel, at some level, all of this has to connect together. And I wonder if he's trying to worm his way through through some of these various uh, um, um, bridges and whatnot. I guess. But, and, and somehow getting there. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, you, have I mean, to be, you have to be able to pull a circuit breaker on it. Well, how does it tell you it needs to pull? you need to pull yeah. a circuit breaker? I don't know, but it, you know, there's, there's got to be some connections there. I don't know. Well, the, from everything that, in covering some of the NBAA conventions the last few years, in-flight entertainment systems have been a big thing in business aviation with systems for retrofit and more and more new aircraft coming from the factory equipped with them. Uh, Fly-by-wire in these airplanes is still relatively rare. The A320 series are all fly-by-wire. The Gulfstream G560 is fly-by-wire. One or two of the Falcons are fly-by-wire. But those systems don't allow 
for any kind of wireless communication to update data uh, unless it's a specifically installed piece of machinery for that purpose. Otherwise, from everything they've ever told me, there's no connection between in-flight entertainment systems and what goes on on the flight deck so, beyond so, maybe somebody being able to reset a breaker for it on the flight deck. So why is the entire law enforcement and aviation industry freaked out about this guy? Well, This is the same guy who was taken off the United flight after tweeting some it was admittedly childish and, 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 and kind of taunting and, and could be construed as a threat. Tweeted something and he got pulled off the United flight um, from Chicago to um, to Syracuse or something like that, and he's just been you know kind of jerking chains here for a few months, uh, maybe longer than that. Um, FBI is kind of crawling into his shorts to find out what's going on. The whole thing was was like, you know, dude, um, don't you know anything about whack a mole? <laughs> yeah, really. Rick, were you trying to jump in there? No, it. it uh when you when you look at the systems, um, depending on which system it is, and you know United in particular because that was kind of the the flight that he was talking about, you've got the direct TV system, and then you have a Wi-Fi system. They reboot that thing regularly in flight. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the the whole concept is, is just flawed. Having said that, anybody trying to do that is a threat and is a yes. risk. And, and that's that. I was going to suggest that that's at least one reason why the FBI has taken this so seriously. Just the fact that there's this guy who's claiming that he's trying to do this stuff is going to get some attention. It would seem to me. Um, yeah, I think that would count as threatening the security of a of an aircraft. Yeah, and that that kind of stuff. Uh, last sign I saw at the airport said tampering with aircraft is a federal offense. Yeah, so that's that's going to get some attention. But. And this this story is so imprecise; it's really hard to tell exactly what he may or may not have done. Yeah, and and and, and to me, that's an, yet another clue that he didn't really right. pull this off. But right. um, it would seem to me that once he's announced himself, there'd be a couple of smoking guns in various logs and you know electronic system logs on this airplane, and they would know pretty well, quickly. Is it conceivable to any of us that the the, the, the two people on the flight deck? could be sitting up there monitoring the instruments and then have the airplane inexplicably yaw in flight, in cruise flight, and them not notice that? Yeah, well, they, were, they didn't notice it because they were busy playing with their laptops themselves. So. Oh, of yeah, course, of course, which were being hacked. Yeah, right, exactly. So, anyways, I don't know. I, you know, I, it'll be interesting if we ever get a definitive answer on this one, but as a network guy, I, I, I quite frankly consider it almost criminally negligent, negligent if this is possible. They should not be the same networks. It should be almost well, physically separate, but certainly highly firewalled. You know, there are integrated cockpit systems that can pull up to their base of operation and have their software updated wirelessly. Yeah. You can do that. But that's, that's a specific login and location right. pairing that's just not universally available. Yeah. And I don't think that it works when the aircraft is in flight. I, it, yeah, we don't know. So enough. Yeah, I, that's. I, I there's a similar system. You can get the similar, a similar system from Garmin on a, on a brand new Cirrus. Um, yeah. it, it'll it'll Wi-Fi, you know, all the engine data and G1000 data uh, to the mothership uh, once it's in range. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. anyways, Jack, Jack yeah. for your comfort, I can tell you that um, uh, 
network security is probably the biggest headache for the shops that are doing Wi-Fi installations. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. And and so, um, yes, the FAA has guidance and policy on it that uh, is is quite challenging. If in fact there is a connection between computers, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which is why in most cases there aren't. Yeah. Uh, yes. So. Crazy, crazy story. I don't know whether we'll ever find out what really happened, but yeah. uh, anyways. Hey, usually... Uh, skepticism is warranted. Yes, yes. Oh, I think, well, especially since they didn't come up with a smoking gun, you know, something from the flight data recorder or a system Would that log. be a smoking bit or bite? Yeah, something like that, right. Yeah. 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 Hey, Rick, normally when we have uh, uh, fr- uh, guests, friends on the podcast, we give them an opportunity to add things to our list, and we neglected to do that. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to talk about? Is there some story out there that's on your mind? Well, I think ADSB is on everybody's mind. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a, a, a heavy hitter. And, and I think the other thing that, that comes to my mind is, is, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this, uh, this Part 23 rewrite and and general aviation reauthorization that's taking place. Um, and, and unfortunately, most of that is focused on, on uh, forward-fit aircraft or new aircraft, mm-hmm. new type designs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what has kind of gotten lost is the efforts that are going on uh, both inside the FAA and outside the FAA to, uh, to address the legacy aircraft and to, to try to improve that that process and so you know those are those are areas that uh, we're spending a lot of time on and uh, and certainly um, uh, worth talking about what yeah. so uh, how how would the 23 rewrite um, be contemplated to do something to car three and part 23 airplanes um, it's not okay <laughs> so Okay. And and that was the challenge is is that the the tasking for the uh, rulemaking committee the ARC was to look at Part Twenty Three and creating a a future for Part Twenty Three that doubles the safety at half the cost. You've heard that mandate. Sure, sure. Um, in the midst of that, we had a, a working group that actually dealt with legacy aircraft and and the retrofit environment in the retrofit community and and one of the things that came out of that was the uh, AOA indicator hmm. um, that uh, came out about a year ago that the FAA was accepting uh, ASTM standards for uh, AOA indicators for part 23 airplanes right. and the the concept of the FAA issuing a production approval production authority for an ASTM product, uh, without the v- benefit of a full PMA or TSO, was a huge step forward, and it came out of the activity in the 23, um, 23 uh, rewrite. Uh, okay. um, and there's more products and there's more standards that are being developed right now, which in, uh, hopefully will improve things. Um, it's not going to take your you know, 1960s vintage 172, and allow you to treat it as if it's an amateur-built experimental airplane, but it should streamline some of the products. Cool. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You mentioned ADSB. 
What's your view, if you have one, on the whether or not there will be any sort of extension for anyone on this deadline for ADSB stuff? Oh, <laughs> my crystal ball <laughs> isn't that clear. Okay, um, yeah. I, w- I will tell you that um, I am probably 90% confident that the, the 2020 deadline will uh, stand. For all types of aircraft? Uh, for all types of aircraft. Okay. Now, because as you as you certainly well know, the airline's A4A is pushing hard for an extension. Well, not really. Really? Okay. Yeah, well, how, really. Tell, what do you see? Um, they are uh, petitioning for a limited exemption for specific aircraft um, to provide for a position source. Um, um, offsets, okay? Mm-hmm. So, offsets. so instead of going to a full WAS system, they're going to be using a, a C-129 GPS. Uh, but it provides most of the functionality, but not quite all of the functionality. Okay. So it's, it's almost ADSB, but not quite. Now, and they're going to allow them uh, is it mainly a matter of accuracy of the GPS data, uh, uh, fidelity of it, um, WAS versus non-WAS as an example? I, you know what? I actually think it's a, it's a matter of the, um, uh, the notification of it as much as it is the, the accuracy. When you, when you look at the requirements, um, the, the navigation integrity I think may be off just a little bit, and the accuracy may be off just a little bit um, with regards to that. But it's it's not a let's ignore the 2020 mandate and just push it to 2025. That's not right. what their petition is at I, I, all. I noticed in reading the petition, they talk a lot about selective availability. Yes. And that kind of tells me that the receivers in question uh, were certificated, were certified around the time that selective availability was turned off. Does that resonate at all? Uh, you know what? That sounds about right. The, uh, I mean, we're, we're dealing with essentially legacy uh, C-129 Class C systems. Yeah. What, and does that apply to GA at all, a Part 91 operation? Can you, would, would you normally see uh, a radio with that certification installed? Um, well, you go back to to the early C-129 Class A systems, but the the challenge is is that the airlines are committing to upgrading the transponder, upgrading all of the wiring, and having flight limitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, dis- dispatch and, limitations. And and so, in order to d- dispatch, yeah, in in order to. Uh, take that concept and overlay it into a GA environment, the operator that owns the fleet of personal aircraft of one uh, would probably spend more in the first hour trying to petition for an exemption Mm -hmm. than the entire upgrade of the WAS would cost. Oh, okay. (laughs) So... Yeah. It's it's not well, it, it's not a, it's not by any means prohibited and, and if you yeah. actually 
you know, do a Google search on, on petitions, you'll see that there's been a number of petitions out there uh, looking for individual exemptions off of the ADSB mandate. Sure. Um, but interestingly enough, when you, when you break the aircraft down, um, the, the GA community, as, as painful as it is for any of us to spend money, uh, have, have the greatest inventory of solutions available to us. Oh, I think not only is that true, but I think the percentage of the fleet, well, certainly in, in raw numbers, the, 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 the raw numbers in the fleet of aircraft equipped with ADSB out has got to be greater than the 121 operations. Uh, in total headcount, yes, not percentages. Yeah, not yeah, total headcount, not percentages. Right. And we're uh, about, that that uh, will change, however. Uh, well, well percentage-wise, yeah. we're going to end up with, and, and, and you can't look at the fleet in fleet numbers. You have right. to look at the fleet in transponder numbers. Okay. Okay. And I'm not why, sure if I understand the, the difference. Why the distinction? Yeah. Well, because ADSB is only required in the airspace that currently requires a transponder. Okay. Right. Okay. So if you know, if you look at the 186,000 light GA aircraft out there, um, there's only about 140,000 or so that are actually transponder equipped. Yeah. So it's the transponder equipped folks that you know will will feel the the quote requirement. To add ADSB to the to the equipage. Now, when you get outside of the light GA community, uh, looking at rotorcraft, business aircraft, and, and air carriers, um, they're typically transponder equipped already. Mm-hmm. So the percentage of their of the total fleet that are transponder equipped is greater in those right. communities than it is with the with the light GA community. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What, I, I, and Rick, you may not, may not be your, uh, your rice bowl. I'm led to believe that some LSAs um, and maybe some experimentals, although I'm a lot soft on the experimental, uh, are not going to be able to use their existing, well, especially in the case of the LSAs, uh, because of the way they're certificated. Um, there may not be an upgrade path to ADSB for those aircraft, or at least a feasible one. Mm, no, I don't think I'd go there. Um, okay. uh, Dynon, yeah. um, actually just today, I think, or yesterday, announced the upgrade for their systems uh, to meet the requirement. Okay. The, the challenge you face with LSA yeah, it's the way the, it's the way the aircraft is certificated and who approves um, right modifications right yeah. and and that's the that's the challenge you face is is that um, unlike a, a certified airplane where you could take an airplane in and and do an, an upgrade and arguably get it field approved uh, for ADSB because that's what the policy calls for. Um, in order to do it in a light sport airplane, it's not in the maintenance manual. Right. Uh, and therefore, by, by definition, it is a major uh, modification, and that requires the aircraft OEM to approve 
the, the change. And in some of the, you know, some of the smaller systems, it shouldn't be a big issue, uh, but it is going to take the aircraft OEM to approve the modification. It's not going to be just a, a simple uh, go in and bolt it down and call it good. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't is, think it'll be an impediment. Okay. Is, is, that's not a big deal, though. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so. When you look at, uh, in particular, if you look at the standalone uh, ADSB systems, uh, assuming that, that you don't have one of the primary flight display systems installed in the aircraft, but, but more of the, the, of the legacy federated system. Sure. Um, you've got a number of uh, add-on systems that you can put in the aircraft that are functionally independent of the panel. And as long as you have space to put it in there somewhere, you'll be in good shape. Right. And uh, you'll have to get it approved. For the primary flight displays, uh, for the most part, I think those will be software upgrades. Hmm. Very interesting. Welcome back to Public Television's Masterpiece Pilotage. And now, iambic pentameter for the left seat. <clears throat> the gentlemen and ladies whom you hear opine within this airspace uncontrolled. They fawn, they joust as free men all, espousing no opinions of their lords or masters under whose employ they work. They speak at times as ones who give advice unsolicited, do not apply directions from them to your piloting, for generic are their words and thoughts herewith. Mark well this thought. When piloting your plane, consider well your very circumstances. Remember training that you have received, and fly the airplane, although this you knew. Um, Rick, um, on, on our last episode, we talked for a little bit about the uh, big World War II flyover that happened over uh, Washington, D.C. a few few weeks back. You're down in that area. Did you by any chance get out to actually see this? I, I did not. I was uh, uh, out in the uh, middle part of the country, I'm afraid. Uh, too bad. That would have been a great opportunity. I mentioned uh, almost in passing when we were talking about it that there was one uh, forced landing during during the event. Um, and, uh, Rick, you don't know this, but we actually have a little feature. We call it off-field landing of the week. We talk about uh, uh, times when uh, people have to... Uh, to uh, land the airplane unexpectedly. This isn't, strictly speaking, an off-field landing, but uh, since we recorded the last episode, video has appeared on the internet uh, talking or showing uh, from the cockpit of this, uh, it was a, uh, what was it, a a TBM Avenger um, aircraft that was a flight of three, um, and as it was passing a beam the mall, about to make its turn and to swoop in and do the, uh, swoops maybe not the right word, but uh, uh, to do the actual flyover of the mall, um, suddenly had an emergency. Um, and we can actually see it on the video. The uh, pilot describes, and in fact, it looks like on the video, um, as if uh, he had a fire. He had smoke in the cockpit is what it looked like. Um, turns out that what it really was was a very, very high-pressure hydraulic fluid leak, which apparently under those circumstances can look just like smoke. Um, and, so, uh, and, and so he declared an emergency and, and said he had a fire on board um, and uh, was able to kind of turn. I don't know. I, I vision it as being turning like 20 degrees to the right. And then uh, that's about right. And and giving him a yeah. uh, giving him a straight into uh, to Washington National there, um, where he uh, you know I mean and you you really want to get on the ground fast even though it only took like 
seconds, like a, a couple, a minute or two or something like that. It wasn't a very long period. It was like 90 yeah. seconds. Yeah. Um, you still want to get on the ground really, really fast because if it was a fire, it can, it can develop real fast. So, uh, so he was in a hurry to get on the ground and, uh, and did a remarkably calm job at it. And, uh, um, got himself and his airplane and, and his he had at least one passenger with him and uh, and they got ground, got down and uh, he was even given the fire trucks instructions on final and uh, saying this is where I'm going to stop and this is where I'm going to be and uh, and then once they came to a stop he's hollering at his passenger or passengers get out get out get out and uh, and they did and it turned out to be I mean not uneventful but uh, there was no fire there was just you know, a, you know what I tell my passengers yeah, I do know what you what do, what do you tell your passengers well I tell my passengers that if, if the airplane comes to a stop on something that's not a runway um, get out of the airplane if you stop to ask a question you will be talking to yourself yes because you will run them over it's like yeah yeah no so congratulations on this pilot for uh, for getting on the ground safely and uh, saving his pass himself his passengers and his plane and uh, oh what one of the things that made it I think a really interesting piece of video to watch uh, the multiple times that it runs on that loop where the uh, pilots comments critiquing his performance and and explaining what was going on in the process uh, that he came back with. Uh, what I think is he showed some real professionalism cool head acted quick decisively did what he had to do get it on runway 19 at Mm -hmm. national Uh, but the little notes that are interspersed as you watch it a second and third time that that I thought was really informative yeah, he he. The video that we're talking about, he uh, he showed it just sort of in real time first, and then he went back and played it again, and he kept breaking up and pausing it um, with these uh, uh, basically uh, super, t- you know, titles, uh, you know, um, slides. Yeah, what's the word I want? Um, what's the, what, what are they? Oh man, what do they call the things when you can't hear and you turn them on and so that you can see the words that people are speaking? Come on. Oh, closed captions. Closed captions. So it's a little bit like that, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't displaying what people were saying. It was displaying his explanation of things that were going on. And yeah, David, I agree. It was pretty interesting and and uh, and, and you know very good of him to give us that that sort of education, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. The, for for the folks that have had the opportunity to fly in D.C. Uh, prior to 2001, um, it, it's uh, literally an extended base. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Left base off the mall. Uh, yeah. Into final on one nine there. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but what a bummer! I'll tell you. I mean, first of all, you, you know, your airplane goes bad and it scares you. That's bad to begin with. All right. He didn't get to do the flyover. I mean, this is like you know. I, yeah. That's I, the- that's like, oh man, you know, when is he ever going to get a chance? I think he should get a do-over. I think this guy should get a do-over, right? <laughs> you know? He should get a do-over, but he's also got something that very few people these days, well, very few GA pilots uh, have these days, which yeah. is DCA in their logbook. Yeah, that's well, right. That's, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's and something, I, and I, I guess. You think they charged him the landing fee? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I think they were happy to have him and happy to send him on his way. Yeah. Well, now, now the yeah. question is: yeah. was, was it a mechanical error, or was it a mechanical error? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, to, you know, anybody yeah. could do a flyover, but to land at DCA, right? <laughs> exactly. See, I don't know if I had to, if I was in the, in a situation where I got to either a do a flyover of the mall in formation at this great moment, or b, you know, kind of 
gin up a situation where I got to land at National. I don't know. Yeah, Le- legally land at National. Legally land at National, you know. So uh, they let people land there. Right now. Then they let, they they let a bunch of steermen land, steermen's land there a couple of years ago. One of them had his brakes lock up, and he flipped over and closed that the runway was, for that was half an hour. an air show or something. What was that? It wasn't an air show. No, it was, it was I forget what the, what the occasion was. Rick, do you know? you remember what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, it was about two, three, four years ago, something like that. And there was yeah. some sort of thing going on where uh, I think there was more than one. There was a, there was a handful of Stearmans that, that got an opportunity to land at National um, as part of some event. I forget now. We could There was a reporter in the back seat. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the airplane... What happened? It lost something, ground looped or, or something like that. You know, basically, on uh, on uh, runway one at, at DCA, and shut down the runway for a while. I don't know. I don't remember. Let me. Gee, there's this thing. That's yeah, I know. Really, I'm trying to do it now me, too. Here, uh, let's see now. Film here. production. Yeah, right. That's it was pro- it was it was a promoting a film. T- uh, 2010. 2010, yeah. four or five years ago. Yeah, right. June June of 2010. I was looking to see if AEA wrote about it, but I'm finding an A. That's what it landed with full landed with brakes on. Yeah. yeah, they landed with brakes on. It was unclear whether or not that was it was a malfunction or, or whether the uh, the pilot just kind of had too much brakes, um, but uh, it nosed over and uh, went upside down, and um, so uh, yeah. I'm just I'm just wondering. There's got to be an accident report on this. Let's see. Unit. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Do your NTSB thing. There we go. I want to see this. Or hear this. The group, the group of Stearmans had received a waiver to land at Washington National Airport. I'm paraphrasing here for reasons that longtime listeners will understand. Um, and uh, TSA screened all the pilots and performed background checks prior to the group's departure from Manassas Regional. So it came from your old stomping grounds, Jeb. Right. Uh, they were promoting Legends of Flight, a 3D IMAX movie featuring the Stearman Boeing 787 Dreamliner and Super Constellation. Special preview of the movie took place June 8 at Smithsonian Naval Air and Space Museum. Any luck, Jeb? Yeah. What's it say? Probable cause. The pilot's inadvertent use of the wheel brakes at high speed during the touchdown phase of the landing. So it wasn't mechanical failure. It was, uh, he just had no, too he said, much. He said, although the pilot had 875 total flight hours, including 190 hours in Stearman's, he had seldom used the brakes. You know, over 600 landings in the accident airplane. Why he was using them at, at runway one at DCA, we don't know. But that's what happened. He just wasn't familiar with them and overbreak the airplane. Yeah. and went over on his nose. Okay. Okay. There we go. Hey, Rick, while we've got you here, um, I see from your bio on AEA.net uh, that you are apparently a member of the board of directors of ASTM International. Am I correct about that? I am, yes. I think a lot of us are familiar with ASTM only because of its involvement with the LSA uh, uh, certification, if you will. Bad word, I guess. But uh, um, tell, tell us a little bit about ASTM. What's, what's that organization all about, at least as far as aviation is concerned? I know it's got a big, big um, um, charter, but uh, the aviation part, what's a- ASTM? Um, <laughs> well, Another they- hour-long discussion? No, it, it, it basically everything you touch on the airplane. Um, the um, uh, I started working with ASTM mm, probably thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my collateral duties with Coast Guard was is managing the fuel farm for about six months. Uh, all aviation fuels 
are to ASTM standards. Mm-hmm. Um, we all live by ASTM standards today. Uh, automotive fuel, everything else, but in particular aviation fuels. And the quality systems that are, are pumping sites, um, whether it be a, a standalone uh, tank or an underground storage tank at an FBO or anything like that, those are all managed and the quality systems and the filtration and everything else. Uh, ASTM is uh, a standards body. Um, we are familiar with uh, SAE, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, we're familiar with uh, mill specs. We're familiar with uh, MS bolts or AN bolts, right. uh, rivets, all that kind of stuff. Well, back, um, actually, about the time I moved to Washington, um, there was a law passed, uh, initially an executive order by uh, President Clinton, and followed by a law that basically told the government to get out of the standards body, uh, standards business. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back into the, the uh, mid eighty or mid nineties, uh, all of the familiar standards that we deal with in aviation, the mill standards and and mill specs that we've been dealing with, actually were part out to standards bodies. SAE got some of them. Um, um, ATA or not ATA um, AIA got some of them um, and uh, ASTM got some of them and essentially the, you know the, the stuff that we call mil specs MS bolts and all this stuff actually aren't they're SAE bolts mm-hmm. but um, ASTM is just another one of those standards bodies uh, on equal footing been around for a hundred years. Uh, does a lot of piece parts, and plastics. I mean literally a hundred years. You're not you're not just being you no, know. literally a hundred years. Yes, right. Okay, go ahead. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of the the components that we use are using ASTM materials um, in their design and manufacturing. So the aluminums, the plastics, the rubbers, those types of things. The um, um, we're familiar with the light sport aircraft. At the same time as the light sport aircraft, the FAA had chartered ASTM to rewrite the wiring standards for Part 23. And those standards have, have been in place and approved by the FAA uh, as an acceptable means of compliance in the design of Part 23 aircraft for a little over 10 years now, about 12 years. Um, as well as the maintenance and inspection and repair uh, for wiring systems and aircraft. Uh, so the, so the, the Part 23 that we're working on is, is actually the, the, the latest and newest of the family. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea that ASTM had their fingers in that much. Yeah. And uh, so to the extent you can tell us, what are you wor- involved with? with them right now these days well um the uh the aviation sector uh is taking most of my time and um the that goes from from the committees are numbered f-37 which is the light sport aircraft uh f-38 which is um unmanned systems f-39 which is um uh, aircraft systems, and I actually chair that committee as well. 
and then uh, F-44, which is um, for Part 23 aircraft. Um, in addition, we've got uh, a new standard coming out of the systems group uh, dealing with um, uh, infrared uh, night suns for helicopters. Mm, okay. uh, I, want, I want one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I want one on the debonair. There yeah. you go. Um, and, and so the basically, we're seeing a lot of the of the standards that that uh, because of the austerity measures of government in general, they just don't have the resources to to meet all the demands of industry, and so we've got this other tool in the toolbox that we're using more often. Hmm. But 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 also, I mean, w- when you talk about consensus standards, um, and and because I live in the avionics world right now, I'll kind of default to that a little bit. Um, most of the TSOs that the FAA currently holds simply incorporate by reference a consensus standard published by RTCA right. or a consensus standard produced by SAE. Okay. R- what did you say? RTCA? What's that? Um, oh, goodness. Is that an acronym for some organization? Is that what it, it actually is an acronym? Although everybody just calls it RTCA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is that part of of, uh, of ASTM or is it another organization altogether? No, it's uh, Radio Technical Commission for Aeronautics. Ah, okay. Yep. And when you look at uh, Dave was lurking G- back there, ready to jump in, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you look at GPSs or ADSB or uh, HTAs or or any of the systems out there that are required in aircraft, um, RTCA is a uh, government-sponsored mm-hmm. uh, organization, uh, very ingrained with the, uh, uh, the FAA. Uh, it was chartered by the FAA to operate a federal advisory committee. And so uh, the FAA basically says, hey, we need you to do this. They'll go develop a standard. Uh, and then that standard becomes incorporated into uh, a, a TSO. And so the, the idea of a third party developing standards is, well, let's see, RTCA was founded in 1935. So, you know, only about as old as the FAA itself. Mm-hmm. That's all pretty interesting. So um, one last subject, and I'm going to open the door on something that could be just a whole other episode of this podcast, but but I didn't want to let it pass. Um, and, and I'm going to put Rick on the spot here for just a second. And just if you can't, just say, I, no, I don't want to talk about that. Um, does AEA consider drones to be a new part of their turf? Does that mean, um, you know what I'm talking about here? Is I it, do. And and so what 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 is AEA, is, are there, what do you think? Um. If, uh, first of all, I I, de- I detest the word drone. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. You, I, I kind of do too, but it's so common. Um, it, UAVs you know what it, or, or whatever your preferred. Yeah. It, it actually is, and unfortunately, I think we've lost that battle. Yeah. Um, but the um, first of many, I'm afraid. But go uh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Or or the latest. Yeah. Um, but uh, an aircraft is an aircraft is an aircraft, and uh, a model. Uh, is a model. Um, the latest criteria that comes out, models are managed under the part in the regulation called 101, which is non-commercial hobbyist stuff. Mm. Okay. 
if you use an aircraft for other than hobby, the new 107 kicks in. And the 107 only takes you up to 55 pounds VFR line of sight. So anything beyond that is considered an aircraft. And we consider it to be exactly the same. And our position is, is that um, if it's an aircraft, then all of the Part 43 maintenance rules apply, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the 145 requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, we, we're, not, we're not really enamored with the gee whiz of it, but more the practical side of it. Okay. Jeb, you call our attention to this story, uh, which, which, which you have headlined, Follow the Money. Um, what's this story? It's, it's nothing that big a deal. Where, let me find my link. See, um, go ahead. Say what you're going to say, it, but I, don't, not, I think it's a huge deal, but go you ahead. Think it's a, you, you think it's a huge deal. Well, I, I, I just find it um, that there's that much more money is being put into the drone industry. This is a uh, well-known manufacturer, DJI. They manufacture some some fairly popular uh, drones, um, mainly for uh, camera work uh, and perhaps some other things. I don't know. But um, they just got a big investment, $75 million. Yeah. Uh, venture capital firm. Yeah. Uh, why do you think this is a bigger deal than, than You guys I probably don't remember, but I brought this up on the podcast last fall after having attended a uh, tech conference in San Francisco that okay. was focusing around startup businesses, all right? And there were just a bajillion, every kind of flavor of startup business you can imagine. And one of the panel discussions that they had was about drone, about UAVs, all right, drones, all right? And that caught my attention, so I went out of my way to, to be in the back of the room for it. And and it was it was sobering isn't a strong enough word all right the realization that these weren't really aviation people these were high-tech silicon valley kind of guys who who thought that there was a huge financial windfall in coming from uavs from the business end of uavs whether it's collecting data or doing pictures or whatever it is you're they're going to come up with for uavs just a huge amount of money is going to be involved here and my fear was and still is that that there's going to be so much money in UAVs um, that that certainly we in personal aircraft and maybe even the business aviation world, but certainly we in personal GA are are going to be just run over. I mean, there you know we're because we don't have the kind of money behind us that 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 even UAVs are going to have. Um, I think it's the tip of the iceberg. The seventy, what did you say, seventy-five million? 75 million. Tip of the iceberg. There's well, going to be a huge, huge business behind, uh, around UAVs. And when they want airspace access, they're going to get airspace access. And that's what I worry I don't about. think anybody debates that possibility now. It's the conditions of access that's the big, the, the big argument yeah. right now. They don't want it, much of anything. And we want them to be as knowledgeable and competent as if a human was flying in the machine. Yeah, uh, no, that's the big argument going down. Uh, and you're right; there's going to be a lot of pressure to make this as easy and accessible as possible. And the FAA has has already been somewhat flexible in uh, creating pathway to some limited commercial use and providing some guidelines. And the the impatience is something I think that this new industry is going to have to learn if they're going to be dealing with the FAA because the rest <laughs> of us already know it. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, but I, I you know, I think I think you've got a couple of points here. Uh, one is, is, is Jack. I think you're right that the size of this industry is staggering. Um, I read an article few few weeks ago. Um, the The defense budget has something like six billion six billion dollars mm-hmm. in it for um, UAVs for uh, Army and Navy, and I think I think the Navy has the biggest piece of that. Um, and there was um, I think what this, the Secretary of Navy was quoted uh, in another article mm-hmm. that the next generation not. Not the the F thirty five, but the the next generation Navy fighter will be unmanned. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think that's true. I, I was reading an article, different article about um, d- weapons decisions the United States needs to make. Um, nuclear submarines. The the Ohio's are, are getting long in the tooth, and maybe it's time to think about yeah. uh, you know the next generation. Um, and when you start talking about fighter aircraft, well, the next generation, we, we're pretty much doing everything we can with the airframes, um, technologically, and the engines, in the weapon systems. The next thing to do is, is eliminate one of the problems for the airplane to pull a lot of Gs, and that's the pilot. Right. Well, and isn't it Boeing that's already done a, uh, a trial run with a Navy reconnaissance flying wing doing carrier ops autonomously mm-hmm. yeah they've got that tested and i don't know whether it's in service but it's been tested um i saw an article a while back probably a year ago now or so maybe more than a year uh, that, that that put it somewhat poetically but still i think it's a, it's there's some truth to this that's that pointed out or observed that the last fighter pilot has already been born um, yeah <laughs> and uh, the last U.S. fighter pilot. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Because, but yes. So I. Yeah, I it's amazing how many more G's I can take sitting here maneuvering a joystick, yeah, and I can take an exactly, actual aircraft. Exactly. So I don't know. See, and I, and I've said this before as well. As a technologist, I am completely conflicted. All right, there are aspects of UAVs and and all this stuff that I find fascinating beyond belief. All right, um, and but as a GA pilot. It really, really worries me. I think that they're going to run us over. That's what I feel. I fear that. And I don't know even if there's even a possible way of, of, of averting that because they're going to have so much money behind them. And that's what, well, it, that's what it's all about. But, Jack, I think that's where you go to these, the other elements of the UA, UAS or the UAV, mm-hmm. okay? Because, you know, okay, yeah, it's a big market. and There's going to be a lot of money there. But then when you get beyond the general scope of it, and, and the de- defense is going to be the lion's share of these products for the next, you know, maybe maybe a decade or so. But what you have is you have three different operators of, if you will, commercial drones. One is the hobbyist. Mm-hmm. I'm scared to death of the hobbyist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they are the ones that... that, that keep me awake at night and should keep you awake at night because Why? yeah because it's a hobby they they don't realize they're an airplane um and that they have airplane rules you're supposed to be following and what do you think the effect of that will be um we're going to have a midair yeah yeah we're going to have midair mm-hmm. um the 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 kudos to the FAA um they got 4000 comments but 
kudos to the FAA um, in that they, they took the modeler and said, okay, if it's a hobbyist, it's a modeler. If it's not a hobbyist, it's 107. Mm-hmm. And at least 107 requires a little bit of knowledge that you're an airplane and here are the rules and here's what you have to do. Um, and, but those, again, those are, that's line of sight. That's that, that first generation of rulemaking. The next generation of aircraft are going to be the over 55 pounds, out of line of sight, um, and, and operating um, you know, remotely. Mm-hmm. They are going to be aircraft, and they are going to have pilots. Now, <laughs> I had a, a debate with a, a, a friend of mine a while back that, that um, you know, the FAA doesn't call them pilots. Uh, ICAO doesn't call them pilots. Uh, nobody wants to call these people pilots. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the people on the ground. The people on the ground. Yep. That are controlling the aircraft. That are pilots. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's see. You have a joystick. If you move it left, uh, you know, aileron moves up, aileron moves down, pull it back, elevator moves up, elevator moves it's a pilot. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree. And, and, and I think that there's a hazard in calling them operators. Cause I think that takes a little bit of the responsibility and liability away from them. But, uh, and, and, and the sense of community that they are in fact, part of our community, whether the pilots in the aircraft or the pilot is remotely located. Um, but, the, the interesting thing is, is that the technology that's necessary to see and avoid is still in development. Mm-hmm. Right. And because of that, I still, I, I, I have a certain comfort level that we have at least a little bit of time uh, before we, we have to worry about completely autonomous vehicles, um, point to point without human interaction. Hopefully. Uh, yeah, one of the big jumping off points is going to be mixing the plus 55-pound aircraft, and I agree with Rick that they should, should be considered to be aircraft, um, mixing those aircraft with um, commercial operations with a bunch of innocent pink flesh in it. And I think we're a long way from that. Uh, at this point, I, I think more than ten years, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's not to say we won't get there. Yeah. The big tipping point, of course, will be when uh, when uh, Airbus's Skynet finds out about all these UAVs, and then <laughs> that'll be it. It'll be over then. Mm-hmm. Airbus has a product called Skynet. Did you know that, Rick? We were educated on this last week, so yeah, we've been y- you about know what? I I saw that. Yeah. Um, what were they but, thinking? I don't even. Yeah, well, but yeah. What did you think? What did you think when you saw that? Well, no, I just saw the headline in the in your. Uh, uh, yeah, the, in, in the, our notes. The, yeah, in your notes from last week, and uh, I kind of curious to look into it to see what it is. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, no, they they apparently I I wanted to know if it was an April Fool's joke, and I'm told insistently that they that that Airbus military, whatever they call their military division, actually has a product that that they call Skynet. Well, it reminds me, years ago, I worked for a Japanese company, and 
at some point along the way, someone, this story told within the company, someone had the idea to try to sell this new product with a woodpecker as the mascot. Yeah. And the, um, the punchline on trying to sell this mascot was going to be something along the lines of um, the smart pecker. <laughs> yeah. And this was all dreamed up Japan side. So. And, and, and someone had to, a North American had to gently pull them aside and explain the vernacular to them. I, I guess. I mean, I guess when you, you know. And, and that, that project died on the bomb. When you, yeah. When you look at it in the context of, uh, you know, Airbus for whom English isn't their first language. Right. Uh, right. So I totally get the, the... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, we're reaching here. We're reaching here. Hey, listen, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. Um, shout outs. What do we got here? Rick, this is when we talk about little things that we just wanted to throw in, little thank yous or hellos or, or that kind of thing. And uh, you don't even need to have one if you don't have one. But if you do, I'll call on you in just a second. Jeb, Dave, you got anything? Dave, go ahead. I was just going to uh, call the attention to anybody that's junky enough to attend these uh, kind of events that uh, the Red Bull Air Racers are making two stops in the U.S. this year. Fort Worth in September, Las Vegas in October. Uh, Unfortunately, NBAA is in Las Vegas this year, but not until November. So I can't quite squeeze that timing. But if you'd like to see some good low-level high energy racing uh the race outside fort worth is unless you get in particularly close so mm-hmm. uh and i think it's the same is true at the speedway in vegas where they race yeah. but i haven't seen that one anyway some great pilots there including a couple of guys that are real familiar on the u.s air show circuit mm-hmm. uh michael Goulian yeah. and uh kirby shambles so yes it's crazy flying, I'll tell you. It scares the crap out of me every time I see one of these videos. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, quite frankly, I thought, I, I don't know that I'd ever seen them not fly over water, all right? And that's yeah. that's scary enough, all right? But I, just this afternoon, I was looking at a video, maybe it was related to this story, that talked, that it showed video of them flying that kind of same pylon kind of, you know, course but over land, you know, and it's like, you remember the, remember the, we've seen a couple of these. We've seen, seen incidents where the, the, the racer clipped a wingtip into the water well, there was or, one, or had the wheel, the gear go into the water. There you know? was, yeah, there was something, he, he, uh, the gear got in the water. Yeah. yeah. So maybe you know, the problem. I mean, as, yeah. as firm as water can be under those situations, all right, oh, I know you know, what doing that onto hard ground is going to produce wheel. a different result. Yeah. It was a tailwheel, like on an extra 300 or yeah. something. Yeah. But yeah. but very very skillful pilots and a, and a cool program and a lot of fun to watch if you can get past you know my fear of it but uh, I'm not flying it so what the heck <laughs> hey I'm going to jump in next and uh, just kind of repeat what I said last time which is to thank um, all of the listeners who have provided us with the uh, various kinds of financial support over the years um, we really really appreciate all of the uh, financial support that we receive from our listeners there are two I want to remind you two simple ways that you can contribute to this podcast. You can make a one-time, non-repeating donation by using PayPal. doesn't need to be very much. As little as $10 or $15 is a big, big help. 
or you can make an automatically repeating per-episode pledge with Patreon. With the online service Patreon.com, you can pledge as little as a dollar per episode, put limits on your per-month contribution, um, and change or cancel your pledge at any time. So for uh, more information on how you can support this podcast in one of these ways, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage in the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar, uh, and that will take you to a page with details on both of these support methods. And we thank everyone who has uh, supported us in these ways absolutely, over the years. Absolutely, absolutely. Really appreciate it. Big time. Other uh, shout-outs? Jeb, you got anything? Well, I got to do Florida Man. You got to do Florida Man. I was, I don't All right, go for it. What the heck? All right, so the headline is... Yeah. Florida Man yeah. Flor- Pilot Draws Penis, <laughs> penis. with Private Planes Flight Path. 383 episodes. 383 episodes it took us to finally use the word penis in this podcast. Yeah. I'm so proud. Go ahead. What's the story? What did he do? That's that's it. I don't, I, I can't top that. I can't really add to that. I no, can't. So he, but and he he flew a route that that when you looked at it, when you looked at the trail on like FlightAware, you saw a certain shape. Exactly. Exactly. Florida man. Florida man. Florida man. David, you want to add anything to this? Uh. Man, that's nowhere I'm going without getting <laughs> yeah, into I the know. swamp. So. I know, I know. Uh, but it was it was right. It did overlap uh, the uh, uh, Lake Parker arrival at Lakeland. So yeah, that's true. That's true. So I don't know what that means exactly. I mean, I know what it means. I don't know how that's significant. It, it doesn't. It's not really significant. That's just the route. And that's just. The, I see. Okay. The it, it would have been significant if he had tried to do that during sun and fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Of course. For sure. Well, you don't know his altitude. But yeah. Anyway, but th- thank you, Florida man. Couldn't. <laughs> we couldn't do it without you. Couldn't do it without you. Couldn't do it without you. Rick, anybody you want to say thank you to or hello to or anything like that or? Well, I, you know, I think it'd be, uh, you know, first of all, I think it'd be remiss if, um, you know, I didn't uh, uh, look forward to seeing uh, folks at uh, Oshkosh. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our booth there, and I'll be in and out of the booth all week. So yep. if anybody has to any issues they'd like to talk to, they love to have them come by and and chat for a bit and uh, pick up their. Uh, You're going to be giving away the yellow books. Uh, 2015 copy of the Pilot's Guide to Avionics. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't tell you what's in it this year yet, but uh, um, as always, it's uh, latest and greatest and what's going on. Um, you know, the other thing, we, we talked about the, the UAV for a minute, and uh, one of the projects that uh, isn't on my resume is I'm actually part of the editorial board of the uh, Aviator's Model Code of Conduct. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I am. And uh, uh, we uh, are at the very early stages of exploring the need uh, for a UAV um, code, and so... I would encourage anybody that uh, hasn't uh, been familiar with it or hasn't had the opportunity to to, to see a, a one of the one of the model code of conducts uh, to check it out. It's uh, at secureav.com, mm. S-E-C-U-R-E-A-V.com, and uh, literally we have them for uh, uh, the individual pilots, uh, flight instructors, uh, uh, technicians, mechanics, mm. uh, the whole shebang. Uh, helicopters, students, uh, comes in real handy, and it's just a reminder of a lot of the stuff we were taught at one time or another in our careers, and kind of forget about when the time comes. Very cool. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. That sounds neat. That sounds very neat. 
Well, anyways, yeah, we've definitely run out of our allotted time here. I want to thank everybody. That, big thanks and, and welcome to Rick Perry uh, for uh, joining us in the hangar today. Um, earlier on, I was asking Rick how he wanted to be introduced, how I should describe him, and he corrected my the description I come up with. He said, he says, no, no, he says, I'm a mechanic and a pilot who happens to own an airplane. So that's that's the priorities that, that Rick has for himself. And he is, oh, by the way, the Vice President of Government and Industry Affairs for the Aircraft Electronics Association. Thank you, Rick, for, uh, for joining us. And uh, oh, you've been working on anything in particular you want to talk about? I know you have a column in a magazine and uh, something you want to plug or, or, or call people's attention to? No, I just, um, you know, we've got uh, certainly the column in the magazine, you know, avionics news that we stay busy with. And it's actually been a wonderfully quiet spring for us. Um, we've got a lot of training going on and those types of things. But the FA has been quiet right now. So uh, that means that I get to be quiet. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, long-time listeners know this uh, URL very, very well, but I'm going to invite you to say it. How do people find uh, AEA on the Internet? <laughs> uh, AEA.net. Yeah, we know that no, We know that URL for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and you personally, do you have any particular uh, identity on the net? Are you on Twitter or, or anything like that? Do you have a personal website, a blog, anything like that? Uh, yes, all the above. Um, Give us some. I, uh, I am on Twitter, yeah. at, Rick, at Rick Perry. Okay. No K, just R-I-C. Yeah. P-E-R-I. P-E-R-I-C-P-E-R-I. Yep. Okay. And what else? Uh, I am on uh, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family gets to have the Facebook, sorry. Um, and, um, and I do have uh, a web uh, on uh, um, uh, uh, aviation uh, entrepreneur. It's, it's called morethanflight.com. Cool. Going to check that out, too. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hopefully, you'll be able to join us again sometime yeah. soon. Sounds good. Thank, yeah. Thanks, And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what have you been working on? Um, not a whole lot. I did finish up a couple of projects for an organization. I, let me think. That, uh, the website, I think, is it's AEA.net. Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. Um, just did and he did up. a fine job. A fine <laughs> well, job. Oh. How do you know? You haven't read it yet. <laughs> You probably have. I bet he has. Yeah, yeah. I bet he has. Too. Um, but um, uh, AEA was kind enough this year to uh, uh, drag me out to their uh, their, an- their annual international convention. Mm-hmm. This was in Dallas back in April. Um, I guess it was. No, I guess it was early in May. I, no, okay. it was in April. It was sorry. April because it was just sorry. before sorry. Sun and Fun, I believe, wasn't it? Was yeah, April. yeah. So uh, and. Um, uh, finally got all that turned around and uh, got all that work done and turned all that in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward for that Looking forward for that to hit the streets and gearing, gearing up for my July issue of Aviation Safety and otherwise enjoying the summer in Florida. Very cool. Very cool. Well, other than AEA.net, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, Burnside J on the Twitter machine. Okay. And and you're not even you, you you've just given up on plugging the oh, personal oh, website. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and and yeah, I've given up on the on the personal website. Yeah, there's there's nothing there except my smiling visage. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. Uh, and of course, the magazine. I, I you know inadvertently I, I would talk about that so much. Also, kind of forget about yeah. aviation aviationsafetymagazine.com. There you go. There you go. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's Av Buyer magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, finished up a piece not long ago that'll be out next week and have buyer about uh, how to make sure you're getting the best deal on a used business aircraft, uh, particularly in the international market. 
Cool. Cool. And other than that, it's just turning and burning. Yep. Yep. Now the uh, Av Buyer magazine is uh, is a, a magazine, the comp magazine that's at uh, fine FBOs everywhere, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They they uh, paper the world with uh, at the FBO level, uh, so you can find it there among the AC controllers and, yeah. and other magazines of that type. But you know, I, I open up the magazine. I'm in the FBO. I open the magazine. I point to the byline. I say, I know this guy, and they go, Yeah. So. Huh? And people, Ooh. you know, that Ooh. that and then in four bucks will get you a coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I was going to say, and, and, and you get angry when they don't give you a discount on your fuel. That's right. There David, you go. David, other than the aforementioned, where can we find you on the Internet? Well, uh, avbuyer.com to find uh, the magazine link, uh, aea.net for my work with the fine folks at uh, Independence, uh, Missouri, at uh, the Aircraft Electronics Association. Uh, and soon to be coming to another business magazine, uh, business aviation magazine here, but we're still a couple of weeks short of getting a release on that one. So, mm-hmm. cool. Very, very cool. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can follow me at uh, twitter.com slash jackhodgson, and you can learn more than you really ever wanted to know about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Um, I'm continuing to work on some uh, um, iPhone, iOS software that uh, I'm hoping to announce sometime in the next... Uh, it won't be available in the next couple of weeks, but I'm hoping to announce it in the co- next couple of weeks, and that that should be fun. I think we'll see. That's for you. That's it's not you. a huge deal. I don't want people to get too 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 excited, but I think it's going to be neat, and I think it's going to be the beginning of something interesting. If you want to um, learn more about that, um, just pay attention to AroundTheField.net, um, and uh, you can either check there on a regular basis or actually go there and sign up for my email newsletter that uh, I send out periodically. So, now, Jack, uh, Hannah, you're developing uh, an iOS app. Is that yes, correct? yes. I have two words for you. Yeah, what's that? Android. Android. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I could add one more. It's called uh, Windows. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. Well, okay. That's yeah. But that's we're talking about mobile software here for the time being. But uh, no, no. Yeah. That's that's so am I. Oh, oh, you. Oh, you're a, you're not a Windows Phone guy, are you? I am a Windows Phone guy. Oh, I take back all really? that stuff I said about being a VFR pilot. My goodness. Okay. Oh, <laughs> you know what? I absolutely love it. Yeah? So, you, yeah? so that makes you the one remaining Windows Phone user in America, right? I, well, there's three of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, seriously, you like your Windows Phone. That's, uh, I, I actually have known a handful of people. Not a lot, but I've known some people who have liked their Windows Phone, and I've heard good things about it. But uh, As a phone goes, it's great. As a social platform goes, Apple's much better. I see. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, see, that's maybe that's the title of the episode. You know, Windows Phone. I don't know. We'll see. You're, gonna, you're just gonna chop all that down. To, Time will tell. No, well, you know, listen, iOS is better. I let you talk about Android, so I'm certainly not going to put the kibosh on Windows you Phone. Let stuff, me you talk know. about Android. I tricked you into it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for his help in the show notes and in the forums. Uh, thanks to uh, Mike Morgan, to Royce Earl, to Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. As I said a moment ago, thanks to everybody who's made financial donations and contributions to the podcast. And don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. Uh, you can do the, all these things and much, much more at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? bunch of old folks tottering around the airports. They had to come from someplace where they came from was the cockpit because, you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. 
I was really worried there for a second what he was going to say. I know, I always worry, but we made it. We made it. <laughs>